Progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, or shall I say, welcome back to Daily Power Parsha. The cool thing is that while we were having our Pesach break, so we have not missed a beat with the Torah portions because we're up to exactly the Torah portion that we left off with, which is the Torah portion of Achrei. I had to go. I had to go back to last week and say I thought I just read that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because exactly, because Achare was pushed off for two weeks because of the Passover readings. We had Passover readings um, on the previous two uh, Shabbats, so we didn't read the Torah, the, the normative cycle of the Torah portion. We didn't read the first day of Passover was on a Shabbat. We didn't read it then, and we didn't read it. Uh, two days ago, either on Shabbat because it was the holiday. So every Jewish holiday, you typically read from the uh, special reading for that day, for the holiday. You wouldn't read the, the regular order, the Torah portion. But um, now that the holiday is over, we're back to the regular cycle and the Torah portion. We're back to the book of Leviticus and the Torah portion of Achri. So I'm going to put this up on the screen. Let's jump in. Okay, here we Go. All right, Torah reading for Achrei. Oh, by the way, you see that where it says, In Israel Kedoshim? You see that right under the header where it says, Torah reading for Achrei, it says, In Israel Kedoshim? That's because, listen to this, that's because in Israel, they only do one day, they only have seven days of, of Pesach, we have eight days. So for them, they ended the holiday on Friday. Pesach ended on Friday in Israel which means that Shabbat was already post-holiday, which means that they read Achrei two days ago, and that this week is already going to be Kedoshim. Anyway, not to confuse the issue, the point is that we are a week off. The diaspora and Israel communities are one week off from each other, so this is usually perfectly uh, um, coincided around the world, but in this case, Israeli Jews and non-Israeli Jews are reading two different Torah portions this week. It is what it is, until it gets reconciled, yeah. How does it catch up then? How does it get what, sorry? So we're catch up. Oh, yeah, 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 we'll catch up. We'll catch up, at some point we'll catch up because we'll have a double portion to catch up and get on track um, with, uh, with the Israel. Now, when is that going to happen? I'm not sure. We have to look at the calendar and check that out. But it's going to happen at some point soon. All right, so let's jump in. Um, this is, oh, I was, on, I was on reading number two. Reading number one for Achare begins Leviticus chapter 16, verse number one. Now, the Torah here is going to reference an incident that happened uh, several chapters ago in the book of Leviticus, which is the passing of Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadav and Avihu. The Torah tells us that tragically on the day that the Mishkan, the day that the tabernacle was finally inaugurated, was finally dedicated, which was the first day of Nisan, 2449, basically, uh, essentially uh, two weeks less than a, than a year after the Exodus. So pretty much one year later, the Mishkan, the tabernacle was dedicated. On that opening day, the two sons of Aaron, the two oldest sons of Aaron, the high priest, they lost their lives. And so the Torah here references it um, and you'll see, why, and I'll explain why the Torah references it here, but let's jump right in. So verse number one, And the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons when they drew near before the Lord and they died. The implication here is that what we're about to hear, the dialogue between God and Moses, is somehow related 
to the death of Aaron's sons. In other words, this was communicated to Moses after Aaron's two sons passed away. And why did they pass away, the Torah says? When they drew near, what was the context? They drew near before the Lord and they died. There's something about their drawing near to God. There's something about where they went that warranted their death. And as we'll see as the verses unfold, the message that God is communicating here is that no one is permitted to enter the Holy of Holies in the Mishkan, to that holiest chamber in the tabernacle or in the temple uh, that would later, later be built in Jerusalem. No one was allowed to enter the most sacred space except for the high priest on Yom Kippur. That's the only time and the only context that a human being was allowed to enter that sacred space. On Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, only by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the holiest person on earth, into that holiest space. So that is the only context in which one was permitted into that chamber. Again, the implication here is that they drew, that the sons of Aaron drew near before the Lord, meaning they went into a sacred space that they were not supposed to go, and that's why they lost their lives. Again, it doesn't say that clearly, but that is uh, what some commentaries say as far as the juxtaposition. All right, let's continue. So God is now going to tell Moses about the Yom Kippur service, and in other words, when, when the high priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which will be on Yom Kippur with the right, with the proper offerings in the proper, in the proper context, and this will be spelled out. So if you've, if you've been in a service, the Yom Kippur prayer service, toward the afternoon when everyone's kind of feeling the effects of the fast, and there's a long section after the Musaf or part of the Musaf called the Avodah, which talks about the service of the high priest, on Yom Kippur, it's all taken from right here. This is where the Torah defines or outlines exactly what the high priest was supposed to do on Yom Kippur. Let's jump right in. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to your brother Aaron, because of course Aaron is the high priest, and he needs to know this. Speak to your brother Aaron that he should not come at all times into the holy within the dividing curtain. In other words, he's not permitted whenever he so chooses just to enter that space. He can't just walk in willy-nilly in front of the cover that is upon the ark. He can't do that. Why not? Why shouldn't he do that? So that he should not die. Implication being that if he does go in when he's not supposed to, he will die. Why does God say that Aaron or no one, really no one, not even Aaron, can go into that space? God says, for I appear over the ark cover in a cloud. In other words, it's a sacred space and God says, I am there, my presence now, obviously, this is not literal. It's not literally that God is taking the shape of a cloud, but God is saying, like a cloud that provides cover for the earth, God is in that space above the ark in the Holy of Holies, and thus, you can't just walk in there. You can't walk in without permission. And when do you have permission to walk in? Yom Kippur. And who? Only the high priest. So it's very limited access. It's kind of like... Imagine, it's hard to imagine today because we don't have kings, but imagine a king. Yeah, the king's innermost chamber, private chambers, and somebody just runs in. Like, hey, I'm here. I'm showing up. No appointment, you know, just somebody off the street. I'm here. What's going to happen? They're probably not going to make it, you know, past uh, a, few, a few moments past that. They're, they're, they're not going to live too long, you know, if, uh, if, if, if you violate the king's inner, innermost chambers. So God is saying, I have my inner chambers. That's the Holy of Holies. That's behind the dividing curtain in the Mishkan. That's where the ark is. And you can't go there. However, verse 3 gives you the context where you can. 
with this, verse 3, with this shall Aaron enter the holy. In other words, typically he cannot, but in this context he can, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now, this doesn't just mean that whenever he wants to go in, he can bring these animals. No, it means that in the context, as we'll see, the Torah will define this clearly soon, in the context of Yom Kippur, with the proper offerings, that's when he can enter the holy. So again, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, the Torah says he shall wear a holy linen shirt and linen pants shall be upon his flesh. The significance of this, hopefully, is, is not getting lost on everyone. The linen shirt and linen pants is a, is a uh, deviation from what he would typically wear. The high priest would typically wear beautiful garments woven from multicolored threads, blue, crimson, purple, wool, along with gold thread, and, and, and woven golden threads. It was a beautifully colorful um, outfit or garments that he wore. Um, he also wore like a blue robe, and he, he was very colorful, typically, was the high priest. But on Yom Kippur, because again, we're talking about Yom Kippur here, he wore pure white. White linen shirt, white linen pants. Very simple, very pure. By the way, this is the source of many custom, a custom of many Jews and many, many Jewish communities to wear white on Yom Kippur. This begins with the, the high priest. God says that on Yom Kippur, we have a wardrobe change. No, no gold, no colors, pure white. A white linen shirt, white linen pants shall be upon his flesh. Let's continue verse 4. And he shall gird himself with, you guessed it, a linen sash. Linen, again, white linen sash. And he should wear on top of his head a linen cap. These are holy garments. Four garments. Typically he would wear eight garments that all had gold or some form of gold involved. On Yom Kippur, four garments all white linen. Okay, let's continue. And therefore, the Torah says, he shall immerse himself in water and don them. I want to explain the significance of this, of that statement about immersing himself in water and donning, putting on the clothing. So here's what you need to know, is that on Yom Kippur, there were many things, many forms of service that were done. There was the typical daily service that was done every day in the temple that, and, and the Mishkan that was also done on Yom Kippur. And then you had the specific atonement service that was for the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. In other words, Yom Kippur is a day on the calendar. So you have the typical daily service plus the special Yom Kippur service. So for the typical daily service, he did wear the eight garments with gold. But before he went into the Holy of Holies and before he did the Yom Kippur service, he went into the mikvah. He immersed himself in the waters of the mikvah, and then he put on the special four garments, the four white linen garments for Yom Kippur. In fact, he changed his clothing. If I'm not mistaken, he did eight wardrobe changes that day because of the service flipped back and forth from the regular service to the Yom Kippur service, and it went back, it alternates back and forth, back and forth. You know, in the morning, the first thing he does, regular service. Then he does some Yom Kippur stuff. Then he goes back to regular service. And it, so because of that, he had to go to mikvah, I think a total of 10 times, and there were eight wardrobe changes on that day between the gold and the linen uh, garments. All right, let's continue. And from the community, verse 5, and from the community of the children of Israel, he shall take two he-goats as a sin offering. Now those two he-goats, those were identical he-goats, and one was for God and one was for Azazel, it was, it was, uh, went off the, the edge of a cliff. 
Anyway, that's, uh, again, all of this is Yom Kippur activity. So there were two he-goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Let's continue, and we're going to go back to Rashi and get some commentary on this soon. Verse number six, And Aaron shall bring his sin offering bull and initiate atonement for himself and for his household, which is very important because Aaron is the high priest and he will be acting to secure atonement on behalf of the people. But before he acts on behalf of the people, he has to clean his own house he has to take care of business on his own personal end first. That's why the first, the first sin offering is his own private sin offering bull. Look at this. He shall, verse 6, I'm going to read it again. Aaron shall bring his sin offering bull and initiate atonement for himself and for his household. The first thing he has to clean up is his own backyard. You can't clean up, for, you can't atone for someone else if you're still, right? I mean, look, think about it this way. You can't clean someone else unless you're also in a state of, 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 of being cleansed. So that's the way it works. The first thing he does is bring a bull, off, uh, uh, a bull as a sin offering for himself and, his, for, his ho- and for his household. Let's continue. That's the first thing that he does. Next, he shall then take, he shall take the two he-goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That means he takes the, he takes the two goats, and the, these were two identical goats. They had to look exactly the same. And he placed them in front of the entrance of the tent of meeting. And that's in the Mishkan. That was the Mishkan building, right? the tabernacle building that housed the inner ark and the menorah and the showbread table. And inside the innermost chamber, of course, was that ark inside the Holy of Holies. But he stands outside the building with the two goats. Let's continue. Um, and Aaron shall place lots upon the two he goats. Lots meaning like literally like a lottery type thing. There were two pieces, well, originally they were made of wood, two blocks, one uh, initially made of wood. Later on, when there was some more gelt, they made them out of gold. And the two, on the two blocks of lots, like actual square pieces of wood or gold, one lot said for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. So there were two, one, shed, one said La Hashem on it in Hebrew, La Hashem to God, and the other one said La Azazel. For Azazel, and that was the cliff that they pushed the, the goat off of. There are two lots for the. Sorry, I, I don't. Joy, I don't make this up. I'm just. I'm reporting the facts. I'm reporting the facts. You know, as kids, when we learned this, we always learned it as one was brought as a sacrifice to God, and the other one was sent away. Yeah, it was sent away off a steep cliff, and that 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 was it was that was the the, the part of the process. Yeah. What's the meaning of Azazel in Hebrew then? It's, it's a good question. A Azazel, no, 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 it's not a person. For Azazel is either the name of the place, you know, actually, um, let me see if Rashi gives us a translation of that. Azazel, yeah. This is a strong and hard mountain with a high cliff. As scripture says, a precipitous land, Eretz Gzeira, meaning a cutoff land with a sheer drop. Azazel, I guess, was referring either to a specific mountain or to the concept of a mountain with a very sharp cliff, that is Azazel. Now, what's the etymology? What's the actual um, language? I'm not sure. This I'm not sure. But that's how Rashi, that's how Rashi explains it. So again, there were two identical goats, right? And one was to be brought as, a, as an offering in, inside the Mishkan, as, inside the tabernacle. One is to be brought for God, and the other one to be cast away off the, off the cliff, off the mountain. Let's continue verse 9. And Aaron shall bring the he-goat upon which the lot for the Lord came up and designated as a sin offering. So again, there were two goats and there were two lots. He chose one 
He picked up one lot. It's like two. I mean, if, you, we, if we would do this, we would probably have two pieces of paper, right? We have two slips of paper. You pick up one, up oh, for God, one, up oh, for Azazel. He had two blocks, two like solid pieces, right? He picked up one, boom, la Hashem, boom, la Azazel. So the one that came up, la Hashem, the one that came up for God, that was designated as a sin offering. And the he goat, verse 10, and the he goat upon which the lot for Azazel came up shall be placed while still alive before the Lord to initiate atonement upon it and to send it away to Azazel into the desert. Okay, so that is what happened to that second goat. Um, it was designated for Azazel, which means it was sent away into the desert. Let's continue. And Aaron, so again, first thing is first. First thing, first thing that happens is he brought his, in verse 6, he brought his sin offering bull. That was step one. Step one is he offers his own sin offering on behalf of himself and his mishpach and his household. Okay, so that was one. The next thing that happens is the two, he takes the two goats and does the lottery, designates one uh, as a sacrifice and one as a, uh, uh, um, to be sent away into the desert. Next, and Aaron shall bring his sin offering bull, verse 11, and Aaron shall bring his sin offering bull, and he shall initiate atonement for himself and for his household. He shall then slaughter his sin offering bull. So at this point, he slaughters his bull. And he shall take a, a pan full of burning coals from upon the altar. Now that is, again, the altar. We'll have to look at Rashi to see which altar. There were two altars. He takes a pan full of burning coals from the altar, from before the Lord. That may, that may indicate it's the inner altar. And both hands full of fine incense and bring it within the dividing curtain. So this is the first time he'll go into the Holy of Holies um, for that year. So take a look at what he does. He takes a pan with burning coals. So imagine like a, like a shovel, puts burning coals in that shovel. He's holding it now. Then he takes two handfuls, although he's already holding something in one hand, so however that works. He takes two handfuls of incense, the katoras, the smelling, the, the, um, the spice mix that created the incense fragrance. And now he comes in with the hot coals and the incense. He goes into the Holy of Holies, behind the dividing curtain. Take a look. Verse 13, and he shall place the incense upon the fire. He puts the pan with the, with the coals down on the floor, and then he drops the incense on top of the fire before the Lord, so that the cloud of the incense shall envelop the ark cover that is over the tablets of testimony, so that he shall not die. Again, he's got to do it right, or else, that's kind of what the Torah is saying, or else dot, dot, dot. Right? It's not going to be so good for him. So he ha when he comes into the Holy of Holies, he's putting down the fire pan or the pan full of, full of uh, burning coals. He drops the incense or yeah, sprinkles it on it. And whoosh, the, cloud, the, cloud, um, uh, the cloud of incense, that smell, that fragrance, fills the Holy of Holies. Let's continue with verse 14. There's more that happens there. And he shall take some of the bull's blood. Remember that bull that he, that he offered on behalf of himself? Uh, atonement offering, he shall take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his index finger on top of the ark cover on the eastern side. And before the ark cover, he shall sprinkle seven times from the blood with his index finger. So he's now sprinkling blood from the bull. Verse 14, he's sprinkling some of the blood of the bull inside the Holy of Holies toward the ark, the ark that no one ever walks in on, only once a year. It had the incense, and then it got blood sprinkled on it and toward it. This is literally what's happening on Yom Kippur. And by the way, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, when it says that he sprinkled it with his index finger, so I mentioned 
um, the way we describe this on Yom Kippur in the, in the Machser, in the prayer books, based on the commentaries, is that he didn't, um, he didn't dip his finger in the blood and then, and then flick it toward the ark, but he rather used his finger just as a, in a whipping fashion. Once up and seven times downward. Every time he dipped the blood, right, and then, and then applied it or sprinkled it toward the altar. So let's continue verse 15. He shall then slaughter the he-goat of the people's sin offering. Remember those two goats? One was for a sin offering for the people, and the other was la'azazel, to be sent away. So the one that was designated for God, i.e. for a, to be sla- slaughtered before God in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, so that was slaughtered on behalf of the people. And he should also bring its blood, the goat's blood, within the dividing curtain, and he shall do with its blood as he, has done, as he had done with the bull's blood, and he shall sprinkle it upon the ark cover and before the ark cover. So you do the same thing with it, with the goat's blood, sprinkle it on the altar, on the ark, sorry, not the altar, on the ark cover and before the ark cover. So that is done also with the blood of the he-goat, with the goat that was on behalf of uh, the atonement, on, on behalf of the people. And he shall effect, verse 16, and he shall effect atonement upon the holy from the defilements of the children of Israel and from their rebellions and all their unintentional sins. In other words, this will cause atonement and forgiveness on behalf of the Jewish people. He shall do likewise to the tent of meeting which dwells with them amidst their defilements. And no man, says the verse, verse 17, the last verse of this reading, and no man shall be in the tent of meeting when he comes to effect atonement in the holy until he comes out. In other words, no one goes in with him. When he goes in, that's it. The high priest is the only one in that sacred space. And he shall effect atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. So what we have here is a very quick and brief depiction of what the high priest would do on Yom Kippur. Now you're probably wondering, where does it say that this is Yom Kippur? It doesn't say that. But it does talk about atonement. And it talks about, and the Torah will tell us that this is only happening this is only, only happening once a year in the, um, in the tabernacle. Give me a second, see if I can find it. Um, I'm looking at the second reading, I don't see it. Okay, but, it's, but somewhere in the readings it's going to tell us that this was only done once a year. And what day was it? The Day of Atonement, the Day of Yom Kippur. All right, let's pause here for a moment before we get to Rashi. Any questions or comments on what we read? Jump in. Questions, comments? Yeah. <laughs> from somebody from a, a little bit just conservative background. So why did it, what's the meaning of seven times Eastern Gate, the detail? I mean, so what's the de- what's purpose? Good, excellent why question. Seven, so the numbers, blah, blah, blah. Right. The east side is the sunrise. Is there a... Excellent question. So Layla is asking the question, right? Um, is asking the question, what's with the seven times? What's the significance of sprinkling the blood seven times? And what's the significance of the eastern side? Sprinkling by the eastern side. So, um, yeah, every detail is significant. And there's a lot of commentaries on this. The eastern side was the side closest to the entrance of where the high priest entered. So basically, the Holy of Holies was situated in a, um, like, I'm just using my phone as a, like a, um, like, site. It was like a, 
What's the word I'm looking for? Like a rectangle? Yeah. Rectangle? And it was, like this was west-east, right? Is that west-east? West-east? Yeah. East? Yeah, west-east. He would enter through here. The entrance was on the eastern side. So what it means is... facing this, the sun, and it's faced for us, the rest of us facing Yerushalayim. Well, it also says, yeah, so we face east, which means we're facing... Um, we, hold on, we face east only because we're in America, right? So we're here, America's here relative to, to Israel. So we go, we face that way. He was coming in from, on the eastern side, heading toward the west. So it says, Shechina B'mayev, it says the divine presence is toward the western side of the Mishkan. So this is where, this is where the ark, this is where the ark was, toward, on, on the western side. But the approach was from the east. He walked from east to west. So the point of the Torah is that he's coming in from east to west, so he shouldn't go around the back and sprinkle on the back side. On the western side, he should sprinkle where he is, standing on the eastern side toward the ark, which is toward the west. In other words, he's, if he's sprinkling it on toward the ark, if he's sprinkling it toward the ark cover on the eastern side, it really means that he's, he's sprinkling it toward the west because he's standing on the eastern side facing the west. As far as seven times, seven is a special number. So it's a seven... Yeah, in Kabbalah, exactly. Seven Sfirot, the seven Midot. It's a good, right, it's good. It's, a, it's, the, it's, the, it's the number of, of creation itself, seven days, seven heavens, spiritual realms. So yeah, it's, uh, it, it seems like the seven is covering the entire spectrum of reality, um, and that, that's kind of what the, what the significance is. All right, let's jump in to our online crew. Any questions or comments before we get into Rashi thus far? No? Okay. All right, I'm going to talk about Rashi here. So, Louisa, you don't have the Rashi here. I have like a button that pops it up over here on my screen. So I'm just going to read a little bit and you can, you can listen in. Um, Rashi comments on verse 1. And I mentioned this, but I want to read it inside just so you see where I got it from. Rashi comments on the language in verse 1 where it says that God told this to Moses after the passing of Aaron's two sons when they drew near before the Lord and they died. So Rashi explains, what, is it, what does this teach us when it specifies that this message was told to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons? So Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah illustrated this, the answer with a parable of a patient whom a physician came to visit. Okay, so this is when physicians made house calls, right? So the physician sees the, the patient. The physician said to him, do not eat cold foods. Do not eat cold foods and do not lie down in a cold, damp place. Then another physician visited him and advised him, do not eat cold foods or lie down in a cold, damp place so that you will not die the way so-and-so died. Which, is, which, which doctor is more effective to the patient? The doctor that says, here's my advice. Don't eat this food and don't, don't. Or the one that says, don't do that because you know what? So-and-so died because he didn't listen to me. Which one's more effective, right? Physician number two. Because you're putting it into a context and saying someone didn't follow the advice and you know what happened to them? They didn't make it. So this one, the second one, Rashi says, warned the patient more effectively than the first one. Therefore, Scripture says, after the death of Aaron's two sons, i.e. God effectively told Aaron, do not enter the holy in a prohibited manner so that you will not die as your sons died. So that, that becomes a stronger warning. If God just told Aaron, hey, don't go to the Holy of Holies, only go there in Yom Kippur, okay. But if he tells him, don't go there, only go there in Yom Kippur. Unlike your sons who died because they went where they shouldn't go, now that has a much more, it's a much more um, effective warning and effective call. 
Okay, so that again, I, and I mentioned that before, but this is how Rashi, uh, quoting from the Midrash, that's how Rashi describes it. Next, the next um, Rashi talks, um, okay, yes, yeah, so they should not die the way his sons died, same idea. Rashi clarifies, for if, if he does enter the Holy of Holies at any other time, he will die. Just, just to be spoken very clearly, that's how Rashi explains it. Ah, for I appear in a cloud. God says, don't go in because I'm, I appear in a cloud. Rashi says, for I continuously appear there with my pillar of cloud, and therefore, since my divine presence is revealed there, he must be careful not to accustom himself to enter. As God is saying, because I hang out there, so to speak, God's really everywhere, but because that's the core, that's the headquarters of my presence, you can't just walk in whenever. Rashi says, that's the simple meaning, which is what we discussed before. Our rabbis, however, interpret it as follows. He shall not come except with the cloud of incense on Yom Kippur. In other words, the cloud is not the reason why you don't enter, but the exception when you could enter. The cl- you can enter, what, what you can't enter typically because you can only enter when you have the cloud of incense of the, uh, of, of the Yom Kippur service. Again, it's a twist in the Hebrew. It works also, both interpretations, but it's an interesting uh, angle. It's not saying when you can't go in, it's saying when you can go in when you have the cloud of incense. Um, very interesting. It says, verse 3, Bezot Yavo Aaron. With this, Aaron shall enter. Rashi says, Bezot is the gematria, numerology, of uh, that Hebrew word Bezot. With this is 410, which is an allusion to the number of years that the first temple would stand when the priests were righteous like Aaron, and it was as if Aaron lived all these years and entered the Holy of Holies. The first temple stood for 410 years. And that's alluded to in that verse, the, the op- sorry, in, in verse 3, the opening word, the Hebrew word bezot, the numerology of that word is 410, and that's an allusion, that's a hint to the temple that would stand in Jerusalem, for the first temple for 410 years, in which there were high priests that were worthy, like Aaron. So it's almost like Aaron, your descendants who will be worthy, will enter for 410 years as the temple stands in Jerusalem. By the way, the implication of this also is that in the second temple era, not all of the high priests were like Aaron which is true, because uh, if you know something about the Jewish history of the time, in the the era of the second temple, which, by the way, stood for 420 years. Temple 1 stood for 410 years. The second temple stood for 420 years. At that time, there was a lot of corruption in Israel. There was a lot of um, chaos because the Romans started ruling, and uh, they they, they started, um, even before the destruction of the temple, they already were kind of leveraging their, their power and might in, in Judea, in, in, in Israel. And the high priests were often chosen, if you will, when they purchased the right to be high priests. In other words, they weren't chosen because of their spiritual um, righteousness, but chosen because of their, of their money. They actually paid for the position. And they, none of those high priests that paid for the position made it out alive on Yom Kippur. Because in order to make it out alive from the Holy of Holies, you had to be righteous. You had to be deserving. The people that bribed their way into that position, the people that bought that position, they wouldn't make it out. The Talmud says that the custom was that they tied a rope around the high priest's waist when they went in, in that, at that time. So that if the high priest, and they would tug on the rope when they went into the Holy of Holies, 
And if they didn't feel a tug back, they knew that the guy had died and they pulled out the body. Are you with me on this? Because no one could go in to retrieve the body, right? Because you can't go in. So how do you, if, if the high priest dies, then, but these guys would buy it anyway, knowing they would die. People would pay the money to go into the Holy of Holies to have that experience, even though they knew they wouldn't make it out alive because they weren't worthy of it. But to have that experience, they paid with not only their money, they paid with their lives. So they literally put a, a rope or a, a heavy, you know, heavy string slash rope around the waist. They tied it to the, to the high priest. And if they didn't feel anything, they would pull them out. But that's only the second temple era when there was a lot of corruption with that. First temple era, they were like Aaron, they were righteous, and that's what Rashi says is alluded to in the gematria, the numerology. By the way, I think it's cool that Rashi pulls out a gematria, a, num- a numerology, because typically that's not Rashi's bread and butter. Rashi is more the simple explanation of the verse. He doesn't usually get into mystical ideas or numerology, but here he pulls it out, I guess because it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a core piece of, of understanding for the verse. All right, let's continue. Oh, Ra- oh Rashi clarifies right, there, right here. Um, with this, Aaron shall enter with the right offerings and the right protocol. Rashi says, and even with this, not at all times. In other words, even if he's coming with the right offerings and the right incense and whatever, it's, it's not whenever he wants, but only on Yom Kippur, as specified at the end of the section. I told you, you have to read the whole section, and at the end of the section, verse 29, the 29th verse, it says, in the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, etc., i.e. the tenth of Tishrei, namely Yom Kippur. The Torah will, we haven't done it yet, but there will be a verse that tells us that all of this is talking about the tenth of Tishrei, which is the day of Yom Kippur. Okay, here we go. Rashi again. Rashi stealing my thunder. No, I'm kidding. I saw Rashi's thunder. Rashi says that the Kohen Gadol is supposed to wear a linen shirt, etc. Rashi says by enumerating only the four garments of an ordinary Kohen, Scripture informs us that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, does not perform the service inside the Holy of Holies, wearing the eight garments with which he performs the service outside the Holy of Holies. Why? For those garments contain gold. You know, I, I don't think I mentioned this. Maybe I did. And, the, and a prosecutor cannot become a defender, i.e., since the Kohen Gadol enters the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur to effect atonement for all Israel, he may not enter wearing gold, which is reminiscent of the, of the golden calf. Instead, he wears four garments like an ordinary Kohen, all of which were made of linen, pure white linen. So again, Rashi here clarifies that the, the garment changed, that at what, what he's doing outside the Holy of Holies, he could wear the eight garments. But when he goes into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, he's got to wear the four white linen garments, Simple, pure, white linen garments. No gold, because gold is a trigger. <laughs> gold, ah, gold. You want atonement? Gold. Aye. What about the golden calf? We don't want any reminiscing about the golden calf. No, nothing that evokes it, nothing evocative of, of, of that terrible sin. Therefore, white linen is the way to go. No gold. Um, let's continue. Yeah, Rashi again mentions the garment changes that I mentioned. I, I'm not going to read it, but it's, uh, it's in that Rashi that I'm skipping. Okay. By the way, the sin offering bull, Rashi says, this, the, the scripture teaches us here 
that this bull had to be purchased from Aaron's own money rather than from public funds. Most of the sacrifices were brought from, were purchased from public funds. Where did the animals come from? There was a public, there was a temple fund. But Aaron's own sin offering, he had to pony up the cash for himself because it's his offering. The offerings on behalf of the people come from the people. But his own personal offering, his own, his own, that comes from his own private money. You can't mix, uh, can't mix those funds. All right, next. Let's continue. Place lots. We talked about that. I'm going to skip that. We did Azazel, the, hard, the, the mountain with the sheer cliff. We already covered that before. Um, just looking through Rashi's here, trying to get to see if there's a Rashi here that's going to add something that we want to talk about. Okay. So Rashi adds something that is very important. Okay. Verse 11 talks about Aaron uh, initiating atonement for himself. So this is the second time that we have mentioned in this reading about the bull and the atonement. So Rashi, of course, deriving from the Talmud, Rashi says... This is a second confession. This is not a re repeat of the first one. The Torah is not just telling us twice. Same thing. This is a second confession. And it is for himself again and for his brothers, the Kohanim, all of whom are called his household. So what's important here to know is like this. He does confession twice. One confession on behalf of himself and his immediate family. And the second confession, and when I say confession, what do I mean? I mean, he literally asks God for forgiveness for anything that he has done wrong. So he first asks it for himself and his family. And then a second time on that same bull, he asks for confession. He, he says the confession, asks forgiveness for himself, his family, and his brethren, all of the Kohanim, all of the priests. And it's only the third iteration of confession on the he-goat that is on behalf of the people. So there's three confessions. One for him and his family, two for the rest of the Kohanim, the rest of the priests, and the third confession is on behalf of the entire Jewish nation. Okay, let's continue. He takes a pan full of burning coals. This is verse 12. Rashi says, oh, oh from the altar, oh, Rashi clarifies, referring to the outside altar. So look at this. The coals are coming from the outside altar, where they would bring the animal offerings on typically. So that's, those are the coals that he used for the incense that would go into the Holy of Holies. He didn't use the inner altar, he used the outer altar's coals for the inside service in the Holy of Holies. He shall place the incense upon the fire that is inside the pan, and he shall not die. Rashi says, if the Kohen Gadol did not make it according to its formula, in other words, if the incense is not the proper blend, he would be liable to death. And that's not in a court, that's obviously at the hands of God. Um, sprinkle it with his index finger, that refers to, Rashi says, one sprinkling, and before the R cover, seven times, thus once above and seven times below, he sprinkles, and I mentioned this before, he sprinkles once up and seven times down, for a total of eight sprinklings of the blood. Okay, let's continue. Let's 
Let's see if there's any more Rashis that I'd like to cover here. Okay, uh, no Rashis for the rest that I wanted to read. Um, what I do want to point out, verse 17, this is not a Rashi, this is the verse itself. If you notice, verse 17, I'm going to reread 17 and then I want to share an insight. It says, and no man shall be in the, in the tent of meeting when he comes to effect atonement in the holy until he comes out. So the simple meaning of this is that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, works alone. No assistance, no help, no uh, vice president or co-chair, nothing. He's, he's there in the, in, the, uh, in the Holy of Holies by himself. That's a simple meaning. But if you want to get very literal... And the Hebrew says, adam lo moed. No man shall be in the tent of meeting. Upon which we might ask the question, to which we can ask, hold on, no man shall be in there? What about the high priest himself? What about the Kohen Gadol himself? It says, no man shall be in there. What about he? What about himself? So no, it means no other man, but it doesn't say that. It says, no man shall be there. So wasn't he a man? So how does that work? So the commentaries say like this. Commentaries say that on Yom Kippur, the high priest was not a man. Yeah, he was, but he was on the level of an angel. So that's when the Torah says that no man should be in the tent of meeting. What it means is even the high priest who was there was not an ordinary man. He was elevated spiritually. On that day, he was elevated to the status of an angel when he was performing the service before God. And the same texts that say that also tell us in our own lives, on Yom Kippur, we can also emulate and be like the angels. That's why we were white. Another reason why we were white is not only for purity and simplicity, it's also for atonement, and it's also to mimic the angels, because in some of the prophecies, the angels are referred to as white beings or beings of light. So that's why we were, we were white on Yom Kippur, because we're like angels. That's why we typically do a lot of standing on Yom Kippur. Many have a custom to stand throughout the prayers. Standing, because the angels are referred to, again, in the books of the prophets, the angel, in, in prophecies and visions, the angels are referred to, referred to as omdim, angels stand. Uh, uh, angels are not reclining or sitting or crawling creatures. They are upright standing creatures, at least as depicted in Jewish scripture. Um, another element of this is it says on Yom Kippur, we are not subject to the temptations of the evil inclination. We don't have the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, bugging us on Yom Kippur. In fact, the Hebrew word hasatan, which means literally the Satan, hasatan, the numerology of hasatan is 364. Hasatan, we spoke about numerology before. Hasatan is 364. The Satan, 364. You know what that means? That it operates, satan, the evil inclination, the, the dark side, so to speak, operates 364 days a year. You know which day it doesn't operate? Yom Kippur. And I know what you're thinking, but we operate by a lunar calendar, and a lunar calendar is anyway 354 days, not 365. All right, we'll have to, we'll have to operate, we'll have to go solar. This is a solar-powered uh, solar Tvar Torah. It's a solar Vart. It's a solar idea. So 365 days of the year, but the Satan, HaSatan is only 364. The numerology is 364. The negative force, the negative side, the dark side, only operates... 364 days a year, not on Yom Kippur, which means that on Yom Kippur, if we choose so, we could be wholly enveloped in a state of holiness like the angels. So all of this to say is that the Torah tells us that no other man, or no, not no other, no man should be in the tent of meeting when the high priest does his thing. What about the high priest? 
He's not, an, he's not a man. He's an angel. Oh, and you and I, there's no, there's no temple today. We don't go into the Holy of Holies. But you and I can also strive to be like angels on that day of Yom Kippur, free of all of the ills that plague us. It's a day in which we're not worried about our food. I mean, we might be hungry, but we don't, we're not dealing with food. We're not dealing with other forms of material indulgence and pleasure. It's pure spirit. One day a year in which we indulge purely in the spiritual. All right, that's it for reading one. Questions or comments or daily wisdoms? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I've got an interesting note here. It says, um, it says the verse for the tent of meeting that dwells, that dwells with them amid their impurity. In other words, this is, uh, in other words, the, the Shekhinah, uh, it says it could be understood to imply that the possibility of the presence of impurity is the cause of the tent of meeting dwelling among them. Mm. But this is not so. The verse means to say that the Shekhinah, or the imminent presence of God, rests upon them in the tent of meeting despite their impurity. It's not because of the impurity, it's despite the impurity. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I would say... Yeah. from uh, Messiah uh, Yomim, whatever that is. Mesechas uh, Yuma, maybe? Yoma? Yomim. It says Messiah... Oh, Messiah Ilmim. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a commentary. It's a commentary. Okay, got it. Um, by the way, I would say the Hasidic understanding would be probably, the, the Kabbalistic Hasidic understanding would be the opposite. Right? The opposite. That God is with us because of our imperfections, which, again, you know, God loves us with the imperfections. First of all, the fact that we're not perfect, trust me, believe you me, God is not surprised. I, I, God, God is not like, what? I totally expected you to be a perfect tzaddik. I have no idea why you're flawed. You know who made our flaws? Right? Thank you, Donna. Broken vessels. There's no, there's zero element of surprise here. Trust me, there's zero element of surprise. God created human beings with imperfection for days, right? We are imperfection everywhere you look. And that's Something, you know, when we say to, I was about to say something to celebrate. I don't mean to celebrate and say I'm imperfect, so therefore I'm just going to, you know, mess up and I don't care. That's, no, the, per, the whole point of life is tikkun, is repair, right? We start off broken by design. Not like God couldn't make us perfect. Of course he could. He also made perfect beings. They're called angels. And then he kept on going until he got us. Not because it went wrong. It's like science experiment gone, gone rogue. Oh, no, human beings. It's not, it's not a rogue science experiment. It's by design. The imperfection is by design. Our job is to fix. But there's beauty. Look, Mark, you read that, but you also know very well what it says in Tanya about a Bainani, that God loves the Bainani more than the Tzaddik on some level, on some level. God loves the struggle of the imperfect human being, more than the, on some level, more than the perfection of the pure tzaddik. Now, a, a person might say, what's, how could you get better than perfection? And you just have to look at, uh, at kids. That's the same thing we have with kids, right? There's the kid that doesn't have to study and gets hundreds on their tests because they just know the material. They're smart, whatever it is. And then the kid that's not so naturally gifted, but they work hard. And you know, when they work hard, they get a 78 you know what? There's, there's beauty and power to the 78 more than the 100. But the 100 is perfect. It's perfect, but it's missing, it's missing vibrancy. It's missing vitality. It's missing life. It's missing... It doesn't have the same depth and energy. The, 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 the child that struggled and got the 78, 
didn't achieve perfection, but they achieved something maybe even beyond perfection, which is, which is something beautiful. And so when God says, when the Torah says that God is with us in our imperfection or that the tent of meeting, so that the Messiah, that commentary says, no, God is not with us because of the imperfection. Despite the imperfection, he's with us. But I would say, based on the mystical and Hasidic understanding is, you can go the other way also, that God loves us in our struggles, with our struggles. God is not surprised by the struggle. When we fight to do the right thing, when it's difficult, trust me, there's no greater pleasure on high. You don't have to trust me, it's in Kabbalah. The greatest pleasure on high is when we have to work hard to achieve. That's it. That's why we're here. No, uh, no, no cakewalks. All right, so this concludes reading one, the first reading for this week. We're not going to go further because um, there's, we're at the time and there's a lot more to cover tomorrow. So tomorrow the plan is that we're going to cover readings, hopefully readings two and three, and then catch up to, uh, to the readings. So today we started, the, I'm just going to summarize now. Today we started the reading of Achare. By the way, many people call it Achare Mot, but not Chabad. We don't call it Achare Mot. We call it Achare. You know what Achare Mot means? After the death. We don't want to talk about death. Achre, after. After what? The death. But we're not going to talk about that in the title. Achre. So the Torah portion of Achre begins with a conversation about Yom Kippur. That's what today's reading is about. About the one time a year that the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies. A convergence of time, space, and spirit. The holiest day of the year. The holiest place on earth. And the holiest person, the holiest soul on earth. A convergence of time, space, and spirit coming together on Yom Kippur with the high priest and the Holy of Holies to effect atonement for the Jewish people. By the way, even, you know, I don't have to get so mystical on you, Mark. Even the simple concept here is important. What's happening? When does the high priest go into the Holy of Holies? On the day of? Think about it. Atonement. He doesn't go in with, with a Nachas report. He doesn't go into God and say, hey God, look how perfect we are. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't go into the Holy of Holies bearing perfection. He comes in carrying imperfection and saying, can you help us out over here? We're, uh, we're a little bit stuck in our own humanity. We can't get out of our own way. There's beauty in that. You, the, the context of entering this most sacred space is imperfection, not perfection. In other words, what catapults the high priest into that space? It's not the wings of perfection. It's the broken pieces. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. I hope I communicated that somewhat coherently. Maybe because he's still a human being at his core? No, what I'm saying is quite literally the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, is affecting atonement for all the sins of the people, which oh, means okay. that he goes into the Holy of Holies to the innermost chamber on the holiest day for what purpose? To talk about all the mistakes. What I'm saying is there's, 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 there's an energy in the imperfection, and this, it's, but again, it's not accepting the imperfection. It's the striving to become better despite or whatever, using the imperfection or despite the imperfection. So it's not, so we're walking a fine line here. What we're saying is that perfection that's inherent is not so valuable because if God makes it perfect, so then what's, great, it's perfect. God, God already did that. It's called heaven, it's called angels. That's not, that's not earth. Earth is the, the platform of imperfection striving to become a little bit more perfect or a little bit closer. We're not going to get there. Not happening. I mean, sorry. Hate to burst anyone's bubble. We're not getting to that state of perfection. It's not possible. King Solomon writes, 
right? The wise of all men. It's not possible. There's no human being on earth that only does good and does not fall short on some level, right? Even if we're not overtly sinning and messing up, but there's always, you know, a benchmark that we might be falling short of. There's, you know, we could always do better. It's always possible. So there, there's no perfection. We stand on Yom Kippur and we ask God for assistance and we, we, we turn to God and we say, you know what, we commit to a better year, to being a little bit better than the previous year. That's the ultimate sacred experience of the human being. The sacred experience is not, is not um, look, the biggest mistake we make is, is, is thinking that we should be perfect. That's one of, the, one of the mistakes that we make is thinking that we should be perfect, right? Or telling ourselves that we're perfect. It's just arrogance. It's not true. And holding other people to a perfect standard, for example. Right? It's like, how come you're not perfect? Right? Somebody says or does something that we don't. How come you're not perfect? And we, don't, we don't say that, but that's where it's coming from, right? The, the, the anger that we might have or whatever, the disappointment, the resentment. It's because you should, we, expect, we expect you to be perfect and you're not perfect, so how come? If we erase that notion of perfection, I think we'd all be better. The author ever wrote a book called Tanya, but it, the other title is Sefer Shalbeninim. It's the book for the average person. He didn't write the book for the tzaddik, right? They don't need a book. You're a tzaddik, you don't need a book. You're perfect, you're done. The book that he wrote is for the Benini, for the struggler, because that's the space that we're in. Yeah, you have some tzaddikim. Sure. You have some, like, very rare, few and far between. All right, so what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is, right, it's all about recognizing our flaws, striving to become better, and it's in that experience of striving that we truly encounter the divine. Yeah, Donna. Yeah, so, so prayer has replaced the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. So what has replaced the high priest going into the... Holy Good. Excellent, excellent, excellent question. So first of all, I mean, Yom Kippur itself, the Day of Atonement itself, is still today the Day of Atonement. Our prayers on Yom Kippur can replicate that on some level. But I would say on a daily level, the Amida prayer. The Amida prayer is when we step into that sacred space with God. We stand up and we take three steps back, three steps forward, we enter a new space. And it's, it's a quieter prayer. We don't say it loudly. I mean, we say it softly. We, we make it audible, but we don't, we don't shout it. And um, that's, that, that, on an energy level, I would say that the spirit of that type of sublime union is accessed on some level. Because, and young, you know, it was just one high priest that went in our, on our behalf one yeah. day. So now we can... But my mind, right, my mind, and my mind, writes that. Rambam says, and, and he says, anyone who, stru- who dedicates themselves to God, etc., can be like a Kohen today, can be like a priest. There you go. Even my writes that. Now, again, it doesn't have the legal status. It's not like, oh, now I'm a Kohen. You know, hook me up with the first, uh, getting called to the Torah first. It's not on that level, but it means spiritually, you're right, there is an upgrade that can happen. Look, you take away the central thing, it becomes a little bit more democratized. That's the way it is, right? Power to the people. So that's, uh, I guess, a blessing. A blessing in disguise. All right. It is, uh, we'll close it out. Just one thing. Yeah, Mark. I saw an interesting note. Uh, you're talking about 
with, with the high priest wore, uh, how he wore linen when he walked in. Uh, the, the Holy of Holies didn't have gold and all that. But the note I saw is that he, he wore the clothes of a Kohen, well, the other Kohenim wore, except they had a wool sash, a wool belt. Right. His was only linen. Interesting. And I know that uh, it said you're not supposed to mix uh, wool with linen, and that's the only that's this is the only place I've seen. I guess why at least that's the, the Kohen did. What's interesting is that the priests, yeah. all the rest of the year, the priests did mix wool and linen. They were allowed to right. mix wool and linen, but the high priest on Yom Kippur, you're right, he went all linen and not the wool, not the wool uh, belt. Very interesting. Yeah, an interesting thing to think about. By the way, linen comes from the realm of plants, and wool comes from the realm of animals, right? There's four, there's four kingdoms of life. There's mineral, right, the earth, then there's vegetation, then there's animal, and then there's human. Everyone has their own reality. Everyone, a mineral is, you know, everyone has its own needs. A mineral says, just don't, don't crush me, and we're good. A vegetable needs to grow. An animal needs to move around. A human needs to have purpose. Everyone has their own has their own uh, needs. So it's not just the difference between two fabrics, you know, linen and wool. It's two different realities, two different planes of existence. One comes from a plant, one from an animal. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not explaining it. I'm just saying something to think about you know, as we think about the, uh, the energy of Yom Kippur. Maybe it's about, I don't know, growth, Yom Kippur. I don't know. We can start making up stuff. But Ray, yeah, jump in. Uh, you have to unmute. Hold on, hold on. Make sure to unmute. Yeah, you got right. it. It's not related to the topic, but um, does Shiva start when a person dies or when they're buried? Shiva begins after the burial. After the burial. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. You look good, Ray. Ray, yes. Ray, <laughs> it's great. It's great to have you here. It's great to have you all here. It's great to be back. It's great to have Louisa here with us. Thanks for being here. And, uh huh? In person. In person, yes. And uh, please, God, next Monday, uh, we'll have our in person uh, representation and we'll love it. All right. We'll see you guys. Don't forget, this week we're back to regular classes. We have DPP throughout the week, we have Torah studies on Wednesday night. So check your local listings for more fun and excitement. All right. We'll see you guys. Thank Shavuot you. Tov. Take care. Yes, sure. Pleasure. Bye. Bye, Sarah.